Hello, my name is Richard Hogue. I'm a corporate transactions attorney, the founder and managing member of the Hogue Law Firm of beautiful Northville, Michigan, and I am very, very pleased to welcome you to a brand new episode of Virtual Legality. For those of you that regularly watch VL, first and foremost, I'd like to apologize for not being around as much as you or I might like. After my stroke, the old way of organizing videos simply wasn't working, and I was advised to take some time to reframe my approach a bit. As a result, as I'm sure you can see, things are going to look a little bit different around here. Please bear with me if I pause or slow down a bit more than you're used to, or if I don't quite find the right word or turn of phrase. I'm told this will get easier the more I do it, but this interregnum period may wind up feeling just a bit awkward for all of us. Your understanding is appreciated, and I thank you in advance for it. I'd also like to thank all of the Patreon, Utreon, I mean Playor, change the name, don't forget the U, and YouTube members who helped to make this channel possible. And as many of you know, at one tier of support, you can sponsor a complete episode of Virtual Legality like this one. Many thanks to Melissa Latimer for sponsoring today's video. Please do check out those platforms if you'd like to help support Virtual Legality. Now, since we last left off to the land of the biggest deal in gaming, a lot has happened. The most important of which being that the UK's antitrust watchdog, the Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, decided to block the deal not on the chance that Microsoft could hurt Sony in the console space, despite that market comprising the bulk of their findings document, but instead on the notion that Microsoft could hurt competition in the all but vaporous cloud market. The EU agreed that cloud was a concern, but determined that Microsoft's existing and future agreed upon cloud commitments effectively remedied that concern, leaving Microsoft with only one fully blocked jurisdiction, the United Kingdom. That didn't mean that the US was out of things, however, and the Federal Trade Commission decided to escalate by requiring a federal court to enjoin or stop the deal while everyone waited for the FTC's internal adjudicative action to resolve. And that leads us to today, where a federal court in California not only declined to issue the injunction the FTC had requested, but also stated plainly and in black and white that it did not believe the FTC had much of a case at all. Now in this very playlist, I had warned that the FTC wanted no part of federal court, and an outcome like this is exactly why. By proceeding against a large attractive target like Microsoft, they may have received plaudits in certain political circles, but the agency itself is not the final determining body of what is or isn't against the law. And Game Company buys Call of Duty Maker was always a tough case to bring in front of an unbiased third party. Which isn't to say I think the court gets everything right in today's decision. Indeed, you will hear me question a couple of the court's findings, but while there may be some errors here, there shouldn't be any that give rise to a high likelihood for a successful FTC appeal. The fact of the matter is that the decision was always going to be difficult for the loser to appeal in any event, as in the US, an appellate court is primarily looking for errors in legal understanding and application rather than in the determination of facts. Since the granting or denial rests primarily on the finding and balancing of facts by the court, a discretionary interpretation in itself, a successful appeal was always unlikely. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's take a look at the court's decision. First, I've highlighted a few sections here. One. The gist of the FTC's complaint is Call of Duty is so popular and in such an important supply for any video game platform that the combined firm is probably going to foreclose it from its rivals for its own economic benefit to consumers' detriment. Now, if you're the government agency, you never want to see your main argument described by its gist in the opening paragraph. That kind of language suggests that the court does not take your argument very seriously. Things are not likely to go well for you from there. Then we get on to the second paragraph. Four weeks ago, the FTC filed this action to preliminarily enjoin the merger pending completion of the FTC administrative action. So if you're following this channel or this playlist or just this story, you know the FTC 
sued Microsoft to stop the deal last year, or that's how it was mostly described to you, by folks like me. And that is true, but it wasn't a federal lawsuit. It was an internal administrative judge action, or as described here, an administrative action, meaning that within the FTC, they were going to argue before their own administrative law judge that they should have the right to stop this deal and hopefully get the decision that they want out of that. But as you know, if you followed this story for some time, the FTC ultimately doesn't have to abide by that administrative law judge's ruling and can instead just decide that they're wrong if that judge finds against them which is its own kind of argument that was made to the Supreme Court earlier this year to decide whether or not the FTC and other bodies like them should have the right to do those kinds of internal actions and make companies wait and wait and wait until they can have their own constitutional rights adjudicated. Continuing, the court denies the motion for preliminary injunction. So right at the front, we know that the court is going to hold for Microsoft against the FTC. So we know that the FTC has lost, but most importantly, we know that they lost hard. In a hearing like this one, the court has to determine whether it thinks the agency will win, because we don't want to stop what will ultimately be determined to be legal action. But it could still deny the injunction because the equities, or concepts of fairness, dictate against it. That is emphatically not the case here. The court has determined that the FTC is unlikely to win on the merits of its case, that this, that this deal is something that is deserving to be blocked under the United States antitrust laws. Now we get some background on the games industry, Microsoft, and Activision, which I will assume you know. Microsoft makes consoles, among other things. Activision makes Call of Duty, among other things. The merger was signed 18 months ago. And importantly, Microsoft has testified that Activision will survive as a subsidiary after the purchase. That we will see will be important when the court starts analyzing the quote-unquote equities at play in this particular deal. We continue to scroll because we don't need that much background if we're following the video game industry and we're in virtual legality, but background is important for establishing the record for why the court is making the decision that it did. Both consumers and industry participants acknowledge that content drives sales. Then you'll see these black lines. These are redactions from the court. This is an opinion that has been filed with redactions for private information of these private companies that don't otherwise want to be shared just because they're in a litigation with a government agency. Then we get to exclusive content. We have here a descriptor, which is pretty important at the end of the day. Each of the three major console companies is also a vertically integrated first-party game developer and publisher. If you aren't familiar with merger terms, vertical integration here essentially means that you control different parts of the production pipeline. So Microsoft makes consoles. It also makes video games that operate on those consoles. And this merger is being challenged as one of a vertical integration that Microsoft, as a console manufacturer, is buying a game developer rather than a horizontal merger. A Microsoft game developer is buying another game developer that otherwise competes with it because that was the best way for the FTC and some of these other bodies to make their arguments. However, in general, in United States law and in other laws and other jurisdictions, vertical mergers are not seen as potentially harmful or destructive as horizontal mergers because horizontal mergers effectively always shorten competition to some extent because there's an increase in market concentration in whatever that horizontal merger is taking place. Vertical mergers don't have the same effect and they also can have pro-competitive justifications because in general, when you increase your ownership of a production pipeline, you are getting efficiencies and that can lower prices or increase quality for consumers. And so the law constantly deals with that particular question. And the FTC didn't deal with it to the court's satisfaction in this particular, in this particular issue. 
But more importantly for right now, it's interesting to note that the court describes the console market as three major console companies. That would be Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. And why is that important? It's because Nintendo was trying to be excluded from the market under the FTC's own definitions. And with Nintendo included, it's much harder to see how this particular purchase monopolizes or otherwise substantially lessens competition within the console space. In other words, if you see this language at the FTC, it's likely to give you a bit of a stomach cramp because much ink was spilled and trees fell to try to establish that Nintendo was not a part of the console market for antitrust analysis. Now, as it turns out, the argument itself was mooted by the court, or will be as we get through this document, as it will find the FTC wanting even granting Nintendo's exclusion. But you can tell from language like this that the court itself does not buy the FTC's attempt here. Similarly, this line about Sony's preferential treatment, in addition to exclusivity, Sony also uses its market power to extract other preferential treatment from third-party game developers, including earlier release dates, exclusive marketing treatments, and exclusive in-game content, is a little bit telling of the court. It's not so legally pertinent, but it does give insight as to how the court sees the players at issue here. And Sony's not a party, but they're definitely a player in this particular conversation. The court then notes that Call of Duty is not on Switch, nor is it on subscription or cloud. Here again, the court tips its hand a bit as the FTC emphasized that the first didn't matter and that Activision would surely bring its content to these other services in the future. A finding the court will ultimately find is without evidence, and that'll make, that'll make the case very difficult for the FTC to win. Next, we see the court describe access to gaming content. Gamers can access games through a growing variety of payment and distribution models. Diversity of payment and distribution models has increased the accessibility of games and expanded gamer choice. All positives from the court's perspective, that's what you want to see from a pro-competitive standpoint, is increases to consumer welfare. But the framing by the court here of subscription and cloud as payment and distribution models for gaming content is also telling. To the extent subscription and cloud are merely payment and distribution alternatives for the same end product as buying games, they cannot serve as separate markets with antitrust relevance. The court's don't find that there is a distinct market for just different ways to pay for or different ways to receive the same content. The court will ultimately kick on this question, leaving it for future courts to decide while preserving appeal protection, but at least some of the writing is here on the wall. The court doesn't necessarily buy that subscription and cloud are indeed separate markets worthy of antitrust protection. Back to Activision, the court quotes Bobby Kotick for reasons why Activision is unlikely to independently bring Call of Duty to Game Pass or any other similar service. For example, Activision does not allow and has no plans to allow its games in multi-game subscription libraries like Game Pass upon release. This philosophical aversion to subscription services arises from concerns that multi-game subscriptions would degrade the economics of Activision's buy-to-play business model, are inconsistent with the idea of starting with free-to-play as a way that you build game universes and franchises, and possibly could lead to substantial cannibalization. Which makes sense, right? You've got a game that a lot of people buy, a lot of people play, a lot of people enjoy at the current pricing and current model. There's very little reason for Activision to change that when what's working is working for them. So the court here says, Bobby Kotick made this testimony and by quoting it here and by making the determination on this premise, the court has implicitly found this to be truthful or at least successfully persuasive to the court. And this is a problem for the FTC, not just because it hurts the concepts that they want to present, that these things would be coming to the cloud and subscription services anyway. So Microsoft's claimed pro-competitive benefit of bringing them to those services can't be held in their favor. 
And the court looks at this and says, no, we don't think so. That not only hurts the FTC's argument, it also hurts them implicitly because it hurts their credibility. When the court evaluates the FTC on every other point that they choose to make, by looking at these points they're making in background and otherwise and saying, I don't think you're right, FTC, that suggests that the court has overall thoughts about what the FTC is presenting before it. It it harms the FTC's credibility as one plank that they base their case on, as the court found it to be without merit. Cloud gaming, says the court, also known as cloud game streaming, is a potential alternative delivery mechanism to downloading native games for play onto hardware. However, the technology and economics of cloud gaming remain challenging, particularly for latency-sensitive multiplayer games, like, for instance, Call of Duty. Cloud gaming is also limited in its ability to replicate controller functions for console games streamed to mobile devices. So here the court is well advised to note that cloud gaming is not this panacea be-all and end-all that some of these regulatory bodies have suggested that it is, that there are real limitations both from a physics standpoint with respect to lag and latency and also just with respect to controls. Nobody's going to stick an Xbox controller in their pocket with their phone in order to play Call of Duty while on the bus. You wouldn't think. There might be other devices that have that kind of form or function similar to a Switch, but as for streaming to the phone being a complete substitute for what is happening on the consoles, it just simply isn't. And so cloud gaming as an industry is not necessarily going to be taking on as much as the FTC might otherwise suggest that it will. Next, we have Microsoft's post-complaint agreements. Now, the value of these contracts that Microsoft has been entering into for the last 18 months is of some dispute. The FTC would like to say that these contracts are essentially Microsoft trying to pre-remedy the issues that the FTC finds, and so they don't have to look at it until the remedy phase of their discussions, which would happen after a determination of liability on the part of Microsoft and Activision. The court says no. The reality is these contracts have been signed. We have to take those under advisement in some respect, and we'll see that play out a little bit later in this document. Two months after the FTC filed its complaint, Xbox and Nintendo entered a 10-year agreement to bring future Call of Duty titles to Switch and any successor Nintendo consoles after the merger closes. Microsoft executives have nonetheless committed publicly and under oath in court to continue to sell Call of Duty to Sony. This redaction appears to be a description of the contract that Microsoft offered to Sony and that Sony refused for reasons that are probably stated in this section because as it continues in this last paragraph, they say Microsoft have committed publicly and under oath As we know, when we were following the hearing, we saw that Phil Spencer, the head of gaming over at Xbox, says, my commitment is, and my testimony is, to use that word, that we will continue to ship Call of, future versions of Call of Duty on Sony's PlayStation platform. And that leads us to where we are today. Although the agreement allows either party to terminate the merger agreement if the transaction is not closed by July 18th, 2023, and appears to obligate Microsoft to pay Activision a termination fee of $3 billion, The FTC did not file this action to preliminarily enjoin the merger until June 12th, 2023, less than six weeks before the termination date. And this is interesting. It's almost a delay or latches argument if you're familiar with legal parlance. An injunction is an equitable power of the court. It needs to be determined by the court to be in the best interest of fairness or justice. Here, the court doesn't precisely accuse the FTC of so harming Microsoft that they should automatically lose, but the timing notion here does imply that the court finds the agency's hands at least somewhat unclean. Of course, after the hearing in this decision, it should be apparent why the FTC preferred their own internal court to an assessment by a third party. That doesn't get them out of this kind of equation, which says, if you're going to ask us to use our fairness powers in order to make things better, you best not have unfairness on your hands when you bring it before us. So the FTC, by waiting until June 12th of 2023, even though they knew that they were bringing an action against 
Microsoft and Activision last year made it a little bit harder for the court to find fairness to side with them. Then we get the legal framework, the legal standard itself. I sometimes wish decisions would lead with this, so you might better see why some of the background we just discussed is important or not. Hopefully I'm at least some help in that regard. But first we get the ultimate merits question, right? Section seven of the Clayton Act prohibits mergers and acquisitions where in any line of commerce or in any activity affecting commerce in any section of the country, the effect of such acquisition may be to substantially lessen competition or to tend to create a monopoly. So we're worried about creation of monopolies by acquisition, and we're also worried about things that substantially lessen competition. Because Section 7 of the Clayton Act bars mergers whose effect may be substantially to lessen competition or to tend to create a monopoly, judicial analysis necessarily focuses on probabilities, not certainties. This is an unusual area of law. This is asking the court to see the future. This requires not merely an appraisal of the immediate impact of the merger upon competition, but a prediction of its impact upon competitive conditions in the future. That is what is meant when it is said that the amended Section 7 was intended to arrest anti-competitive tendencies in their incipiency. Section 7 claims challenging horizontal mergers are generally analyzed under a burden-shifting framework. The plaintiff must first establish a prima facie case that a merger is anti-competitive. The burden then shifts to the defendant to rebut the prima facie case. Said another way, the agency gets a crack to say, this is why this deal is going to be anti-competitive, and then the court has to listen to okay, maybe it is anti-competitive, but here's why it's it's better than that. The pro-competitive effects are, outweigh the anti-competitive effects. We've seen this from the rule of reason analysis we've looked at in Epic versus Apple and in other contexts on this very channel. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has not addressed whether this burden-shifting framework applies in vertical merger cases such as this. In vertical merger cases, the government must make a fact-specific showing that the proposed merger is likely to be anti-competitive. Rather than using a shortcut, as the court describes it here, to establish a presumption of anti-competitive effect through statistics and a change in market concentration, right? In a horizontal merger, if Microsoft were to buy Sony, we could tell, okay, the market for consoles has been concentrated into one party where there used to be two, and we can look at the percentage ownership of that market in the one party now. But here, where Microsoft buys Activision, they're not in the same industry, at least for purposes of this analysis. So Microsoft is being looked at as a console manufacturer or maybe a cloud provider or a subscription service provider. And Activision is being used as a content provider. It's vertical. You can't do the same thing. You actually have to make a reasoned argument if you're the FTC about why this particular deal substantially lessens competition. And the court's gonna find that to be wanting. Section 13B of the Federal Trade Commission Act provides the standard for preliminary injunction. Upon a proper showing that, weighing the equities and considering the commission's likelihood of ultimate success, such action would be in the public interest, a preliminary injunction may be granted. In determining whether to grant a preliminary injunction under Section 13B, a court must, one, determine the likelihood that the commission will ultimately succeed on the merits, and two, balance the equities. They need to do both of these things. So when you're looking at this, this is a balancing test that the court engages in. So if the FTC is likely to win, they could still not get their injunction if the equities, the fairness principles, were to favor Microsoft and Activision. But even though this is labeled as a balancing test in the statute itself, the actual law here on this question requires you to both have a likelihood of success and to have the equities favor you if you're the government. Now, it's worth noting that other courts have found, hey, if you've got a likelihood of success of proving that a deal is in violation of the Clayton Act, chances are the equities are going to follow you because the public would be harmed by allowing this deal. Where the court doesn't find that you're likely to win, however, they just move on and say, well, you can't win, so we're not going to grant you your preliminary injunction because we shouldn't be blocking deals that are otherwise going to be held to be legal. 
To satisfy the first prong, the FTC must raise questions going to the merits so serious, substantial, difficult, and doubtful as to make them fair ground for thorough investigation, study, deliberation, and determination by the FTC in the first instance, and ultimately by the Court of Appeals. In evaluating likelihood of success on the merits, the court must exercise its independent judgment and evaluate the FTC's case and evidence on the merits. Courts require such a rigorous analysis because the issuance of a preliminary injunction prior to a full trial on the merits is an extraordinary and drastic remedy. This is particularly true in the acquisition and merger context because, as a result of the short lifespan of most tenders, the issuance of a preliminary injunction blocking an acquisition or merger may prevent the transaction from ever being consummated. Right? This is essentially getting thrown in jail before you've actually been found to be guilty of anything in a court of law. It's preliminary. That's what the preliminary is doing there. But it's a drastic step, and the court is reluctant to exercise it unless it thinks that the agency is ultimately going to win and that fairness demands that they give it to the agency. The parties sharply dispute in which form the commission's likelihood of ultimate success should be measured. The question appears not to have been squarely addressed by any court other than in Meta, which is just late last year. In Meta, the court held Section 13B's likelihood of ultimate success inquiry to mean the likelihood of the FTC's success on the merits in the underlying administrative proceedings as opposed to success following a commission hearing, the development of an administrative record, and appeal before an unspecified court of appeals. The court is persuaded by Meta Court's analysis of this issue and adopts it here. The relevant form for the question of likelihood of success is before the ALJ in its administrative proceedings. So this is this is interesting, right? So importantly, the court finds the merit question is based on the FTC's own internal procedure, not on the ultimate chance of success at federal court. I'm not sure that's correct, given that this is a federal court answering a federal question and the court of appeals seems to be the proper place to establish ultimate success. But reasonable minds can disagree here, and the court's finding ultimately cuts towards the FTC, so an appeal is not likely to be availing. That is, the FTC's position is not improved if we were to look at the appeal court instead of the ALJ. It is interesting, though, that the court finds the FTC unlikely to win in even its own proceeding. That does say something indeed. Now the court starts talking about the merits of the case. First, in establishing a relevant market. There are big questions that live here is there is no question that Microsoft does not and cannot dominate all of gaming, which includes mobile and PC and everything else that you can think of as a game, or likely even consoles if you include Nintendo. There's also an open question as to whether cloud and subscription are separate markets to games or simply different distribution and payment models. Ultimately, however, the court will ignore all such questions, determining that the FTC's arguments are so wanting that it can find, without deciding, all of the FTC's markets and the agency will still lose. The first step in analyzing a Section 7 merger challenge is to determine the relevant market. The outer boundaries of a product market are determined by the reasonable interchangeability of use or the cross-elasticity of demand between the product itself and substitutes for it. That is, when one product is a reasonable substitute for the other, it is to be included in the same relevant product market, even though the products themselves are not the same. And this is important for the Nintendo conversation. A product is construed to be a reasonable substitute for another when the demand for it increases in response to an increase in the price for the other. The FTC bears the burden of proof and persuasion in defining the relevant market. The court need not decide the issue, however, as it accepts without deciding the FTC's definition of the relevant markets here. And whether or not you agree with what the court decided to do here, these are important kind of appellate protective steps that the court is taking. It decides with the FTC, we'll grant you all of your market stuff, I still find you a loser. So even if you were to win on that question, hey, if, you, if we had said, well, Nintendo should be a part of this market, and you say, no, they shouldn't, if I didn't say, as the court, that you lose even if Nintendo's outside the market, you could appeal, we'd come back here, I'd have to find that that way, and then we'd go back to appeals, and it would be a whole big thing. So the court here, by finding but not deciding, is effectively saying, 
even if I grant the FTC the benefit of the doubt, they still lose. That tells the appeals court, well, we don't need to overturn this particular decision for reasons based on market definition or some other things that we'll see in this document because the court essentially sided with the FTC, granted the, the benefit of the doubt to the agency and still found them to be losers. We can also see in certain places that the court doesn't buy the FTC's arguments. Here we have the switch conversation. The FTC insists that Nintendo Switch's pricing, performance, and content make it an improper substitute for at least purposes of a preliminary injunction motion. As to pricing, yes, the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 are priced the same and a couple of hundred dollars higher than the Switch. However, Xbox set the price of its entry-level Series S to compete with the Switch. And there are functionality differences between the Switch and the PlayStation and Xbox consoles. The Switch is portable and it has its own screen and less powerful hardware. However, neither the FTC nor its expert considered the extent to which the Switch's differentiated features, including its price, portability, and battery, are factors the customer balances when deciding which console to purchase. Or as they say from Mr. Spencer, describing how Nintendo made technical decisions to enable an experience they thought their customers would want to have, and it's the best-selling console right now in the market. So when I, when people try to tell me it's not competition, competitive for any number of reasons, I don't believe that because I just look at what's selling. It doesn't matter whether Nintendo's products are fully interchangeable with those of its competitors because perfect fungibility isn't required. If this were the requirement, only physically identical products would be a part of the market. Instead, products must be reasonably interchangeable, such that there is cross-elasticity of demand. If the price of an Xbox goes up, you expect more people to buy Switches. If the court was the final decision maker on the merits of this case, it would likely find Nintendo Switch part of the relevant market, but it is not. Instead, on a 13B preliminary injunction, the FTC need only make a tenable showing that the relevant market is Gen 9 consoles. So the burden of proof, the standard is lower here in the preliminary injunction phase for the relevant market question as the court finds it. So it says, well, we wouldn't kick Nintendo out. We don't think that's fair, but we're not deciding the final market. So you get anything that's tenable, anything that's remotely close to reality, and we're going to grant that to you. The console market does not include PCs. The FTC insists, and the court agrees, the console market does not include PCs. Again, they're granting the FTC their markets here and just kicking it down the road. Then we get to multi-game content library subscription services and cloud gaming markets. As to the FTC's additional markets of the multi-game content library subscription services, Game Pass, and cloud gaming, xCloud, while the court questions whether, as defendants posit, these are simply alternative ways of playing console, PC, and mobile games, the court assumes without deciding that they are each their own product market which consider, when considered singly or in combination. So they grant the FTC the benefit of the doubt. Then, after finding the U.S. as a relevant graphical, geographical market, the court sets up to eviscerate the FTC's economist. So first, we start out with geography. The geographic market encompasses the area to which consumers can practically turn for alternative sources of the product. The FTC, relying largely on Dr. Lee's analysis, their economist, insists the relevant market is the United States because game prices and releases vary country by country, and gamer preferences and behavior vary country by country, and inform market participants' strategic decisions. Cumulatively, cumulatively, including with all this redacted information, the evidence suggests the relevant market for competition is the United States. The market for multi-game content library subscription services in cloud gaming is a closer question. However, the court will assume without deciding that the geographic market is the United States for these markets as well. So again, if you take anything away from the middle part of this section, it's that the court is trying to have an abundance of caution by essentially granting the FTC what it wants before it finds the FTC argument unavailing, even with that grant. Now, the effect on competition. Section 7 vests courts with the uncertain task of making a prediction about the future. 
For this reason, the allocation of the burdens of proof assumes particular importance. In a horizontal merger case, the government can establish its prima facie case simply by showing that the merger would produce a firm controlling an undue percentage share of the relevant market and would result in a significant increase in the concentration of firms in that market, typically by presenting market share statistics. But many vertical, vertical mergers create vertical integration efficiencies between purchasers and sellers, and so they can't make that assumption, as we discussed above. So, with this proposed vertical merger, the outcome turns on whether, notwithstanding the proposed merger's conceded pro-competitive effects, the government has met its burden of establishing, through case-specific evidence, that the merger of Microsoft and Activision at this time and in this remarkably dynamic industry is likely to substantially lessen competition in the manner it predicts. And you've heard me talk about the industry's dynamism elsewhere in this playlist, but that's important. If the industry is moving around, if people are entering and exiting, if people are finding it hard to get a high market share percentage or other things are changing on a constant basis, then that dynamism speaks against overly aggressive antitrust law uh, implications because we want people to be moving in and out and we don't actually know where the proper balance for these various parties is. This is one of the issues that we have when we see people defending that this market share should be essentially protected from all competition or change. PlayStation and Sony don't just have their one market share and they can never go down. That's, that's the case here. And in particular in respect of consoles, this is an interesting case for the FTC to bring. The court describes it as the FTC's theory. But now look, no one, not even the CMA in the UK, except for the FTC, has even tried to suggest that Microsoft has a strong incentive to pull Call of Duty from Sony. Why? Because they would stand to lose 70 plus percent of all the dollars being spent on their franchise by PlayStation players. In short, they would be crazy. But by bringing the sure loser of an argument before the court for the bulk of the hearing time, the FTC allowed the court to just stomp on them throughout this whole portion of the opinion. And then what turns out to be a hand wave to hand wave away the more likely subscription and cloud arguments. Remember, cloud has been determined to be an issue in both Europe and in the United Kingdom. It's just with respect to the European Union that Europe found the remedies of the contracts that Xbox had offered to be sufficient. In my opinion, this was a massive tactical blunder for the agency, and I think the court opinion here bears that out. As for the FTC's theory, the primary vice of a vertical merger or other arrangement tying a customer to a supplier is that, by foreclosing the competitors of either party from a segment of the market otherwise open to them, the arrangement may act as a clog on competition which deprives rival of a fair opportunity to compete. The FTC insists the combined firm may deprive rivals, primarily Sony, of a fair opportunity to compete in the above-defined markets by foreclosing an essential supply, Call of Duty. In other words, Call of Duty is so popular and has such a loyal and dedicated following, goes the FTC's theory, the competition will be substantially lessened in the console, content library subscription, and cloud gaming markets unless Microsoft's rivals have at least equal access to this particular video game. None of this language is language that you love if you're the FTC. The FTC argues it can establish this potential anti-competitive effect of the merger through two alternative but overlapping tests. First, by showing the transaction is likely to give the merged firm the ability and incentive to foreclose Call of Duty from its rivals. Second, through examining brown shoe factors, such as share of the market foreclosed, the nature and purpose of the transaction, barriers to entry, whether the merger will eliminate potential competition by one of the merged parties, and the degree of market power that would be possessed by the merged enterprise as shown by the number and strength of competing suppliers and purchasers. Now, the FTC is going to lose on the more traditional analysis here of ability and incentive to foreclose. They're going to get absolutely hammered on this brown shoe stuff. We'll see that in just a second. As a threshold matter, the FTC contends it need only show the transaction is likely to increase the ability and or incentive of the merged firm to foreclose rivals, not do both. Illumina, the decision they base this on, however, provides no authority for this proposition, nor could it. 
Under Section 7, the government must show a reasonable probability of anti-competitive effect. Right? We go back to the statute. We go back to first principles. From whence does the Federal Trade Commission get, get its power? And that's through the Federal Trade Act. That's through things like the Clayton Act, other things that give the Federal Trade Commission this ambit. You can't just make a decision that gives you more power. It actually has to go back to here, Section 7 of the Clayton Act. If there is no incentive to foreclose, then there is no probability of foreclosure and the alleged concomitant anti-competitive effect. Likewise, if there is no ability, then a party's incentive to foreclose is irrelevant. So you have to show at least a scintilla of both incentive and ability, because if you lack one or the other, it doesn't matter what you do with your combined entity. So the court flatly rejects the FTC's assertion that it only needs to show one. It also notes that their own economic expert, Dr. Lee, analyzed both. It is not enough that a merger might lessen competition, says the court. The FTC must show the merger will probably substantially lessen competition. That the combined firm has more of an incentive than an independent Activision says nothing about whether the combination will substantially lessen competition. Ability to foreclose. The court accepts that the combined firm will have the ability to foreclose because it would own the Call of Duty franchise. Yeah, there's no point in arguing this more than that sentence. Once you own the IP, you can absolutely keep it off of Sony if you so desire. The question is, do you have an incentive to do so? The court finds the FTC has not shown a likelihood of success on its claim the combined firm would have an incentive to, and thus probably would, foreclose Call of Duty from Sony PlayStation. The next day, Sony PlayStation CEO Jim Ryan wrote his mentor about the proposed merger. It's not an Xbox exclusivity play at all. They're thinking bigger than that, and they have the cash to make moves like this. I've spent a fair time a bit with... Uh, fair bit of time with both Phil and Bobby over the past day. I'm pretty sure we will continue to see COD, Call of Duty, on PlayStation for many years to come. And this was an email that came out during this hearing, and it was the kind of thing that a court would quote, because it's a bit of a silver bullet. You have Sony, the primary party, saying that this deal is going to destroy them, right? In fall of last year, they say the gaming industry, and Sony in particular, can't survive without an independent Activision. And they have a letter, an email from their CEO saying, I think we'll be fine for many years to come. We'll have Call of Duty, PlayStation will be okay. Valve did not sign a deal offered to them by Microsoft because they believe strongly that they should earn the business of their developers who put on their platform day in and day out. So they told us that they had no need to sign that agreement and that they believed us when we said we would continue to provide Call of Duty on Steam. Microsoft even took steps to expand Call of Duty to non-Microsoft platforms. On the day of the merger's announcement, Microsoft called the head of Nintendo North America, Doug Bowser, and Nintendo's lead for partnerships, Steve Singer, to discuss a partnership to bring Call of Duty to the Switch. All of this conduct, says the court, is inconsistent with an intent to foreclose. Now, if you're against the deal, or if you're pro-FTC on this, or wherever you find yourself, you might look at this and say, court, you can't be this naive, right? Yes, they entered into these agreements. It's inconsistent with an intent to foreclose, but they were entered into precisely for the reason that they need to appear on this page of a court's opinion. In 10 years' time, it might be different. The FTC would argue that. They say in 10 years' time, Microsoft might change them. Microsoft might breach their their deal. FTC's arguments are premised in large part on the notion that Microsoft is just a lying liar who lies, and you can't trust them for anything that they say. Court, of course, doesn't give that the, uh, the power that the FTC would have it be given, but surely they might not have an intent to foreclose, but that's not the end of the analysis. And indeed, it's not the end of the analysis for the court. Second, the deal plan evaluation model presented to the Microsoft Board of Directors to justify the Activision purchase price relies on PlayStation sales and other non-Microsoft platforms post-acquisition. Third, the deal plan evaluation model reflects access to mobile content that was a critical factor weighing in favor of the deal. Fourth, Microsoft witnesses consistently testified that there are no plans to make Call of Duty exclusive to Xbox, and this continues to go on. But fifth, 
The FTC has not identified a single document which contradicts Microsoft's publicly stated commitment to make Call of Duty available on PlayStation. So the FTC, despite getting millions and millions of documents and proclaiming to the world that Microsoft is going to violate their promises publicly and that they did this with ZeniMax, has not found a single even small text message that says, oh yeah, we're going to snow them, we're going to pull Call of Duty from PlayStation, and that's going to be great. Why? Because as even the CMA found out, PlayStation's uh, marketplace for Call of Duty is worth billions of dollars to Microsoft, so you would have to be a little bit crazy to just pull it and hope that you get that money back from Game Pass. Seventh, Microsoft anticipates irreparable reputational harm if it forecloses Call of Duty from PlayStation. Mr. Spencer testified that us pulling Call of Duty from PlayStation, in my view, would create irreparable harm to the Xbox brand, and Bobby Kotick also followed that up. Eighth, the FTC has not identified any instance in which an established multiplayer, multi-platform game with crossplay, that is, a game that shares Call of Duty's characteristics, has been withdrawn from millions of gamers and made exclusive. To the contrary, Microsoft's 2014 acquisition of Mojang, the developers of the hugely popular Minecraft franchise, exemplifies how a console seller, and Minecraft in particular, behaves when acquiring a hugely popular multiplayer cross-platform game. So Court finds the Minecraft exemplar to be useful here. I don't think it's a great analog for Call of Duty, but it's certainly a better analog than Redfall and Starfield, which the Court will also find. While Microsoft had the ability to make Minecraft exclusive, it continued to ship Minecraft on all those same platforms post-acquisition and made subsequent games in the franchise, like Dungeons and Legends, available for Nintendo consoles and even Sony subscription service PlayStation Plus. So the court basically finds that the FTC's argument doesn't hold water because it doesn't match with both the existing history of Microsoft's activities, what Call of Duty looks like, and the math that they use to justify an almost $70 billion purchase price. All of the above evidence points to no incentive to foreclose Call of Duty, a 20-year multi-platform franchise from Sony PlayStation. Now, I wouldn't say no incentive because I do think there's at least a little bit of incentive. You don't know how high your Game Pass numbers can get if you pulled it and made it exclusive to Game Pass, for instance. But I do think that the overall analysis is correct here on the suggestion that it wouldn't make a lot of sense in most circumstances for them to pull Call of Duty from PlayStation. Now, the FTC disputes that the written offer from Microsoft to Sony, to bring it to Sony, has any relevance to its prima facie burden to make a case here in court that this is violative of merger law. The case law that directly addresses the issue contradicts the FTC's position. The FTC insists Microsoft's offer is simply insufficient. In so arguing, it relies exclusively on PlayStation CEO Ryan's testimony. The FTC's heavy reliance on Mr. Ryan's testimony is unpersuasive. Sony opposes the merger. Its opposition is understandable. Before the merger, Sony paid Activision for exclusive marketing rights that allowed Sony to market Call of Duty on PlayStation, but restricted Xbox's ability to do the same. After the merger, the combined firm presumably will not agree to such restrictions. Before the merger, a consumer wanting to play a Call of Duty console game had to buy a PlayStation or an Xbox. After the merger, consumers can utilize the cloud to play on the device of choice, including, it is intended, on the Nintendo Switch. Maybe or maybe not utilizing the cloud for that purpose. Perhaps bad for Sony, says the court, but good for Call of Duty gamers and future gamers. And I think this is really the crux of the court's decision here, right? The Federal Trade Commission was really advocating for a maintenance of the status quo with Sony holding a lot of the cards and a lot of the market power in a lot of ways, including by getting exclusive rights to certain things on Call of Duty and elsewise because of the size of their market position. But that's not the FTC's job. It's not the job of any government agency to go and protect the leading competitor's market share or even a mid-level competitor's market share. The idea is that competition will change market shares based on where the quality and pricing lives. And if Microsoft can offer a better quality or better price than Sony, then Sony should lose market share to Microsoft and the law should be okay with that. There's nothing illegal about that. 
So perhaps bad for Sony, but good for Call of Duty gamers and future gamers is probably the logline that I would suggest people remember this particular opinion by. Now, the FTC's incentive evidence is insufficient. Notwithstanding the overwhelming evidence of the combined firm's lack of incentive to pull Call of Duty from PlayStation, the FTC insists it is probable the combined firm will do so because it is in its financial interests. Now let's talk about economics. Professor Lee's opinion. The linchpin of the FTC's argument is that the expert opinion of Professor Robin Lee, an economist. In particular, he concludes removing Call of Duty from PlayStation would result in a 5.5% increase in Xbox's share of the Gen 9 console market, which again, remember, doesn't include Nintendo. Professor Lee's opinion does not dispute the evidence of Microsoft's lack of an economic incentive. His vertical foreclosure model depends on two key quantitative inputs, the customer lifetime value of purchasers of Xbox consoles and the Xbox conversion rate. Looking at the conversion rate, Professor Lee uses projected sales data to calculate the number of expected PlayStation purchasers of Call of Duty who would instead choose to play Call of Duty on Xbox consoles if it were not available on PlayStation. From this number, he excludes PlayStation owners who already own an Xbox or would choose to play Call of Duty on PC if not available on PlayStation. The conversion rate is the fraction of remaining purchasers, i.e. affected users, that would purchase an Xbox console to play Call of Duty if it was not available on PlayStation. But Professor Lee's vertical foreclosure model assumes a conversion rate of 20%. If you were following the closing arguments during the hearing, you heard this asked of by the judge a number of times, where does the 20% come from? So the court finds the 20% figure is not based on evidence, it is an assumed input. Accepting Professor Lee's lifetime value of 40%, even lowering the conversion rate just a bit to say 17.5% means Professor Lee's model estimates estimates it would not be profitable to withhold Call of Duty from PlayStation. That is, the costs in lost PlayStation Call of Duty sales outweigh the benefits of more Xbox console sales. This relationship is reflected in figure 11 from Professor Lee's report reproduced below. I gotta believe it would also be Game Pass sales, but I don't know that for sure. We don't get to see a lot of this stuff. It's all redacted. So we have to take the court's word for it. But yeah, if you're just assuming 20% will wind up purchasing an Xbox out of nothing, it's very hard to justify these overall model numbers. Professor Lee attempts to defend the reasonableness of his 20% assumption by identifying evidence he contends supports his model's output, the 5.5% share shift. In other words, the 20% assumption must be correct because other evidence supports the model's result. In his direct testimony, Professor Lee identified two pieces of support, an internal 2019 Microsoft strategy memo and his share model output. Neither supports his 20% conversion rate assumption. First, the Microsoft memo states in a parenthetical, an exclusive AAA release accounts for a 2% to 4% console share shift in the US and a 1% to 3% shift worldwide. Professor Lee's reliance on this memo is misplaced. What, if any data is behind the statement? Who came up with those figures? How are they measuring share shift? Shift from what consoles to what consoles? And were those numbers addressing a new first-party game being released exclusively? Or was the author discussing taking a long-standing multiplayer cross-play game like Call of Duty exclusive? Professor Lee does not know. Further, only the global share shift matters in Professor Lee's model. The memo snippet, for whatever it's worth, posits a 1% to 3% share shift globally. Professor Lee testified a 2% share shift would not make it economically beneficial to make Call of Duty exclusive. Thus, the slide does not support Professor Lee's 20% conversion rate input. Now, that all might be true, but it's interesting to see the court make these kinds of assertions. This is a fact-based inquiry, right? And this is the kind of thing that isn't likely to be appealable at all by the FTC if they have arguments with this. The court just found their expert to be wanting on actually establishing any of this math, found the report to be wanting, and the Court of Appeals is not likely to second-guess the court and its discretionary authority in determining this. And that's going to be a killer for the FTC. Second, Professor Lee points to his share model. He says the model results in 8.6% share shift, therefore the more conservative 5.5% share shift output is reasonable. 
but the share model output is also flawed. As a preliminary matter, it is based on gen Generation 8 console data from only the United States rather than global Generation 9 data. But putting that aside, as Dr. Carlton observed, Professor Lee's share model ignores the presence of non-exclusive games in influencing console choice. Even though Professor Lee acknowledges non-exclusive games do influence console choice, Professor Lee's reply reports attempt to fix this error fails again because he accords no value to non-exclusive games in consumer choice. Further, Dr. Carlton also contends Professor Lee's share model assumes every lost PlayStation 4 results in an Xbox sale, even though consumers may choose a different device to play Call of Duty on, or to not play Call of Duty on any device at all. When Dr. Carlton corrects for this error, Professor Lee's share model is between 1% and 54% of what Pro Professor Lee predicts, and thus does not support his critical 20% conversion rate. And what does Professor Lee say about Dr. Carlton's criticism? Nothing in his direct testimony. At the evidentiary hearing on redirect? Nothing. And when the FTC cross-examined Dr. Carlton on his written direct testimony? Again, nothing. The FTC chose not to challenge or even address Dr. Carlton's identification of material flaws in Professor Lee's share model. The criticism thus stands unscathed and persuasive. So the share model does not justify Professor Lee's reliance on the strategy memo snippet reporting console shares move 1-3% to globally with exclusive AAA content. But Professor Lee's assumption as to what was being measured was wrong, and this is all redacted. The slide does not support his conversion rate. In any event, before Professor Lee could persuasively opine the pivotal conversion rate is supported by a survey result, he would need to be familiar with the survey and its design. As his testimony showed, he was not, right? We don't have to accept expert testimony on essentially a third party's expert decision-making. That expert has to be able to analyze things like the survey and how that number came about. Dr. Lee's opinion suffers from several additional weaknesses. It fails to consider Microsoft's agreement with Nintendo and the cloud streaming services to provide ongoing access to Call of Duty, all of which will increase access. It also fails to consider Microsoft's offer to Sony, nor did he consider any reputational harm to Microsoft from pulling Call of Duty from millions of players. Regardless, for the reasons explained, his opinion does not show the combined firm will probably have an economic incentive to withhold Call of Duty from PlayStation, and since that's basically all the FTC offered, you can see why the FTC failed in their arguments. Then we talk about ZeniMax. While the FTC asserts Microsoft's 2014 Microsoft acquisition is not relevant to how it will treat Call of Duty, it insists Microsoft's 2021 acquisition of ZeniMax is predictive of how the combined firm will behave. And in fairness to the FTC, I do think that Microsoft of nine years ago is going to be even less pertinent than Microsoft of two years ago for purposes of this, but that doesn't come up in the court's analysis. Specifically, although Microsoft's deal valuation shared with the board of directors contemplated keeping ZeniMax content multi-platform, it later decided to make two ZeniMax titles, Starfield and Redfall, exclusive, and probably more than two long-term. Agreed that this evidence shows Microsoft's deal valuation for the Activision acquisition is not dispositive of the incentive question, right? One of the things they said above was that Microsoft told the board that this is where the value from Activision was going to come from, and so we could take that in our pile of evidence, but here the court admits that that's not dispositive. We can't just say, well, they did this, so that must be the case. But the FTC does not dispute the evidence that Microsoft does not have an incentive to withdraw Call of Duty from PlayStation. Neither Starfield nor Redfall are remotely similar to Call of Duty. Starfield is a role-playing game that has not been released. Redfall is a first-person shooter game that was only released in May 2023. Now, I think there are reasons why they aren't applicable to Call of Duty as comparison. Saying that Redfall is a first-person shooter game released this year probably isn't the way I would say it. Redfall is a vampire-based, supernatural, low graphics, not highly reviewed title that is the first in a series that Arkane was trying to put together for Microsoft. That is a good enough reason to be different from Call of Duty in my estimation. But since Call of Duty is a first-person shooter game, I probably wouldn't have highlighted that in this particular analysis. Not, again, that it matters towards any kind of appeal or change in this overall opinion. 
Now, effect on innovation. The FTC also insists the merger will decrease innovation because game developers and publishers will not want to work with Microsoft. But the only evidence the FTC identifies is Sony's reluctance to share its intellectual property, dev kits, with Microsoft and provide development kits for its consoles. But this is not merger specific and it fails to account for all the other developers who might now be incentivized to collaborate with Xbox or one of its studios like Activision or Bethesda. Protecting Sony's decision to delay collaboration with Microsoft and therefore PlayStation users' access to Microsoft content is not pro-competitive. You can't say you're protecting competition because Sony, one of the chief rivals of the parties to this deal, doesn't want to give a dev kit to, to Activision after Activision is a Microsoft company. That is not protecting competition. That's protecting Sony. Now, partial foreclosure. This is the notion of making something exclusive on Xbox instead of on PlayStation or potentially degrading the PlayStation performance against Xbox. And here I think the court gets it a little bit wrong. The FTC has no expert testimony to support a finding that the combined firm would have an incentive to engage in partial foreclosure. Professor Lee did not engage in any quantitative analysis of partial foreclosure. Anyway, under the FTC's theories, the goals of full and partial foreclosure are the same. Move enough PlayStation users to Xbox such that the benefits to the combined firm outweigh the costs. If the FTC has not shown a financial incentive to engage in full foreclosure, then it has not shown a financial incentive to engage in partial foreclosure. And that's where I think the court does get it wrong. A partial foreclosure would be able to keep open the credit lines from the PlayStation marketplace of users for Call of Duty or any other game that we might be talking about. So I do think the partial foreclosure analysis is different and less than a full foreclosure analysis. Said another way, there might be a, an, a universe in which partial foreclosure makes sense, but but full foreclosure does not make sense. I don't think if you fail to prove full foreclosure, you can just assume that partial foreclosure doesn't exist. I think the court's wrong on that. But I don't think it's the kind of error that even if corrected by the Court of Appeals is likely to give the FTC the win because the more important part here is that the court says the FTC provided no testimony about partial foreclosure at all. So that is what we might call a harmless error if we were looking at this from a Court of Appeals side. In sum... The FTC has not shown a likelihood of success on its theory the merger may substantially lessen competition in the Generation 9 console market because the combined firm will have the ability and incentive to foreclose Call of Duty from PlayStation. While it is possible Call of Duty's long history as a highly popular multi-platform cross-play game make that result not probable. And so the FTC has failed in its attempt to argue this particular point. And as I said before... I really do think the console argument was the worst because you could just look at all the money they could make on PlayStation and say there's really not a great deal of reason for them to pull it all and put it on Game Pass. And console was dropped even by the CMA. If I were the FTC, I would not have brought this argument because you get 45 some odd pages on console and then the arguments that you do have a chance of winning as shown in Europe, like cloud and like subscription, the court can just say, well, you didn't spend a lot of time on it. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. And that's what they do here. So looking at these other markets... For purposes of the library subscription services market and the cloud streaming market, which Dr. Lee refers to collectively as the gaming services market, the FTC contends the merger will probably have anti-competitive effects because Microsoft would have a greater economic incentive to engage in foreclosure than an independent Activision and would likely have the economic incentive to engage in that foreclosure. As a threshold matter, the question is not whether Microsoft following the merger is more likely to engage in foreclosure than an independent Activision. The question is whether the proposed merger is likely to substantially lessen competition, which encompasses a concept of reasonable probability. As Microsoft notes, a vertically integrated firm's incentives are always more complex in that respect than the standalone incentives of its components. In other words, if the merger could be condemned simply because the combined company would derive some economic benefit from withholding, any vertical merger could be condemned on the same ground, despite the indisputable pro-competitive effects of many vertical mergers. Accordingly, to prevail on its preliminary injunction motion, the FTC must demonstrate the likelihood of success on its assertion that there is a reasonable probability the proposed merger will substantially lessen competition in the library subscription services market and cloud streaming market. And here's where you've heard me say in this playlist and elsewhere, 
online that I don't think that the cloud or subscription services market are actually relevant antitrust markets because they're just different distribution models for video games. But the court, as I said above, is going to kick that question. The FTC argues Xbox will include Call of Duty in its Game Pass library subscription service, but refused to include it in rival services. This exclusion, it contends, will lessen competition in that market and make it likely Xbox will increase the Game Pass price. It is undisputed the combined firm has significant financial incentives to include Call of Duty in Game Pass. The court accepts for preliminary injunction purposes it is likely Call of Duty will be offered exclusively on Game Pass and not offered on a rival subscription service. The countervailing incentives that exist in the console market, long-standing multi-platform availability, cross-play, historically high revenue from games sold, do not apply to the subscription market because Call of Duty is not and has never been offered in any significant sense on a multi-game library subscription service. But the record does not support a finding of a serious question as to whether Call of Duty Game Pass exclusivity will probably substantially lessen competition in the subscription services market. First, the merger has the pro-competitive effect of expanding access to Call of Duty. Adding Call of Duty to Game Pass gives consumers a new, lower-cost way to play the game day and date. Further, Dr. Carlton explains how adding Call of Duty and Activision content in general will actually lower costs for many game consumers and harm none. Dr. Carlton also opines that the merger can be expected to result in an increased incentive to invest in game development that would occur otherwise because adding Call of Duty to Game Pass will result in an increase to the number of Game Pass users and thus increase Microsoft's incentive to invest in other games, not just Activision games. That's true in a broad sense. The more success Microsoft has in gaming, the more likely Microsoft is to invest and to step into gaming. Whether or not that's a good will largely depend on how you feel about Microsoft and their interest in gaming in general. Second, the FTC does not identify evidence that disputes those pro-competitive effects. Professor Lee admits that exclusivity can have both pro- and anti-competitive effects. Yet he did not perform any quantitative analysis to estimate whether adding Call of Duty to Game Pass and not other subscription services will injure competition. Will some people subscribe to Game Pass because of Call of Duty? Yes. But there is no analysis of how many or how it will affect competition with Game Pass competitors such as Amazon, Electronic Arts, Ubisoft, and Sony. In general, the court found the Federal Trade Commission's arguments here to be lacking in substance, that they didn't go through the steps necessary by a normal agency to go and establish that, okay, yes, you put it on Call of Duty on Game Pass, what will that do to the competitors in that marketplace? The FTC's primary argument appears to be that even without the merger, Activision will contract to put its content, including Call of Duty, on subscription services. The record evidence is to the contrary, and we talked about this in the background section above, but the court finds the FTC's mechanism here to try to argue that this is a problem is that they would have appeared on Amazon, or they would have appeared on Origin, or on Ubisoft, or on PlayStation Plus, but they won't now because they're going to be part of Microsoft, they'll only appear on Game Pass. But Activision has never indicated that it has any interest in being on these services, and the court finds that to be a problem for the Federal Trade Commission's argument, and probably for the Federal Trade Commission's veracity. The FTC does not offer any explanation, let alone evidence, as to why it would be financially beneficial for Activision to change its long-held stance on subscription services. In sum, the FTC has not raised serious questions on whether the merger will probably substantially lessen competition in the game library subscription services market. So let's talk about cloud streaming. After all, this is where this deal has come under the most fire in Europe and the United Kingdom. But what does the court here do? The court says that the argument for cloud streaming market to be substantially lessened in competition is foreclosed. The FTC cannot make this argument due to Microsoft's post-FTC complaint agreements with five cloud streaming providers. Before the merger, there is no access to Activision's content on cloud streaming services. After the merger, several of Microsoft's cloud streaming competitors will, for the first time, have access to this content. The merger will enhance, not lessen, competition in the cloud streaming market. Here again, I think the court errs. I do not believe that the Microsoft contracts can foreclose the argument that a merger may substantially lessen competition. 
First and foremost, contracts can be breached, so we still need to look at the underlying lay of the land from a legal perspective. Second of all, to the extent Microsoft did not contract with every current or possible cloud market participant, which is impossible, there's at least some merit in the FTC's hearing assertion that Microsoft is simply picking its competitors. If there is a relevant market here to analyze, I think the contracts can help Microsoft, but they cannot end the discussion. I expect the Court of Appeals to correct the court here, and it's the most dangerous area for Microsoft, but based on the rest of the court's reasoning, which we'll talk about in just a minute, I do not expect an FTC win on this point. That said, I don't think the court's right that the agreements themselves foreclose the legal analysis. At trial, the FTC argued that the cloud streaming competitors based outside the United States should not be considered because their servers are likely outside the United States and are not effective for United States con consumers, but the FTC is merely guessing. Microsoft has offered evidence that Boosteroid has gaming servers in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Texas, Illinois, Florida, and Washington. You never want to be told that you're guessing by the court. It's never a good look. The FTC's response, again, is that an independent Activision would agree to put its content on cloud gaming services, but again, it offers no quantitative evidence to support this bald assertion. Professor Lee did not even model the cloud gaming market, and the fact is Activision's content is not currently on any cloud streaming service and is not likely to be available absent the merger. Finally, the FTC argues the cloud streaming agreements are irrelevant to its prima facie showing as they are mere proposed remedies. The court's analysis as to the Sony proposal above applies equally to the cloud streaming agreements. Indeed, it is even more forced here where the competitor, NVIDIA and others, have actually entered into the agreements. The court cannot ignore this factual reality. So, as we discussed above with respect to the Sony agreement, it does matter. The FTC can't just say it's, it doesn't matter and it's inadequate, as Jim Ryan would put it. The FTC is not correct, and I think the court is accurate in this in suggesting that the contracts just don't exist for this purpose because they could be remedies in the future. The FTC actually has to grapple with what the lay of the land is with those contracts in place. But I don't think the court's right in saying that the existence of the contracts forecloses the FTC's argument that there could be a cloud streaming issue. Then the FTC gets silly. The very nature and purpose of the deal is anti-competitive. I'm not even sure what that means, and neither does the court. Future concentration is not its own crime. Alternatively, as the court describes, the FTC argues that it has established a likelihood of success on its theory that under the brown shoe functional liability factors, the proposed merger's very nature and purpose is anti-competitive, that there's a trend towards concentration in the industry, and that the merger would increase entry barriers in the relevant markets. As an initial matter, the FTC made no reference to this theory in the opening statement or closing argument, nor is it discussed by Dr. Lee's expert report. As to the theory's merits, the FTC does not make any new arguments not considered above. The FTC maintains the proposed acquisition's purpose is to transform an independent platform agnostic source of supply into a captive one controlled exclusively by Microsoft. But this would be true in any vertical merger and does not explain why it demonstrates an anti-competitive purpose. Likewise, while the FTC argues Microsoft's past conduct following similar transactions also demonstrates its likely anti-competitive nature, presumably referring to the ZeniMax acquisition, this ignores the Mojang Minecraft acquisition. To the extent the FTC relies on a trend towards further concentration in the industry, it fails to explain how this trend is anti-competitive here. Microsoft's investment in game developers and publishers allows for increased innovation in content, and Microsoft has prioritized a content pipeline. Who is this hurt? And this is where we see kind of the politicization of the Federal Trade Commission and some of the things we see in the United States and other jurisdictions antitrust law, right? The notion that companies getting together is its own evil is not one that is shared by the antitrust laws in the United States. Maybe you disagree with that. Maybe you think the laws should change and Congress might well wind up changing them. But right now the court is interpreting the laws as they exist and the FTC brought these actions under the laws as they exist. And this is not the laws they exist. These companies want to buy each other. That is not its own harm. And the court finds their argument that it just is, that the nature of the deal itself is anti-competitive to be wanting. And then we look at those balanced equities. 
right? And another court put it perhaps a little bit better than this one. It's the duty to balance hardships, to determine whether the harm to the defendants outweighs the likelihood that adequate relief will be available to the government if the merger is consummated. Because the FTC has not demonstrated a likelihood of ultimate success in the merits, the court need not proceed to the balance of equities question, but it's going to do so so that the appeals court knows what it would find so we don't have to kick it back and forth if, if the court of appeals finds there are problems with the court's determination here. The court finds, however, that even if the FTC had met its burden that they were likely to win their case ultimately, the balance of equities do not fall in its favor. Here, at best, the record contains conflicting evidence on the anti-competitive effects of the merger. Thus, the FTC cannot point to beneficial economic effects as a public equity. There will be no foreclosure of Call of Duty pending the ALJ's decision. The FTC insists the difficulty in ordering post-acquisition divestiture is the public equity that prevails, but it does not cite anything specific about this merger to support that assertion. It is a vertical acquisition. Microsoft and Activision will act as parent and subsidiary. There is no planned dismantling of operations, as in Warner. What exactly about this merger would make it difficult to order an effective divestiture? If people ask me about this during the hearing, Microsoft was adamant about the fact that Activision will be kept a separate subsidiary. And the reason it's important is this equity section right here, which is to say, if the Federal Trade Commission were to prevail at some point in the future, the Federal Trade Commission would want to say, no, you shouldn't have been allowed to purchase Activision. And it's only that you we lost this preliminary injunction hearing that you got to purchase them. You need to unwind it. You need to take it away. And some companies would say, no, we're too combined. It's too difficult to divest. And the FTC would say, well, we're harmed and economics is harmed and the public is harmed because you can't unwind these two entities properly. Microsoft, by essentially pledging that Activision will be kept separate for at least a time, has made it possible for the court to say the FTC doesn't have the balance of equities because you can do this later. And further, Call of Duty isn't going anywhere. They have a deal with PlayStation through the end of 2024. There will be no foreclosure of Call of Duty pending whatever happens in the FTC's ALJ uh, hearing. So we don't have to worry about it. Then we get to the conclusion. The scrutiny of this deal has paid off. Microsoft is committed in writing in public and in court to keep Call of Duty on PlayStation for 10 years on parity with Xbox. It made an agreement with Nintendo to bring Call of Duty to Switch, and it entered several agreements for, to, for the first time, bring Activision's content to several cloud gaming services. The court's responsibility in this case is narrow. If it is, it is to decide if, notwithstanding these current circumstances, the merger should be halted, perhaps even terminated, pending resolution of the FTC administrative action. For the reasons explained, the court finds the FTC has not shown a likelihood it will prevail on its claim that this particular vertical merger in this specific industry may substantially lessen competition. To the contrary, the record evidence points to more consumer access to Call of Duty and other Activision content. The motion for preliminary injunction is therefore denied. And then for those of you that have been asking about the TRO and the cooling off period of a, a number of days after this determination and whether that'll hurt the deal, the court looks at the timing and says, no, we're not going to take this TRO past the end of this week. This opinion constitutes a finding of fact and conclusions of law required by Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 52. Given the compressed time, there might be errors, etc. The court modifies its temporary restraining order such that the temporary restraining order will dissolve at 11.59 p.m. on July 14th, 2023, so the end of the week, unless the FTC obtains a stay pending appeal from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So we can expect that the FTC might well appeal this. As I've identified above, I think the biggest issue possibly is that the court dismisses the cloud argument, perhaps a little bit too completely given the nature of the contracts in question. And I wouldn't be surprised if the court of appeal said, no, that's not right. But also because the FTC failed in so base of its burdens to even establish that there's an issue with the cloud market in this particular instance, I don't think that the court of appeals is likely to change the overall outcome of this injunction, but, or this injunction hearing, 
But I do think that the FTC might decide to appeal because they've been making choices that are based on saving face a lot. Now, they might not because this is a pretty thorough beatdown of their overall assertions here. And the fact, the factual record here has been found wanting to such a high degree that they might just decide to, to tuck their tail between their legs and run home. I don't know one way or the other. But I do know that this is a pretty thorough beatdown of the FTC on behalf of Microsoft and Activision. So if you like the merger, if you like the deal overall, I would expect it to go forward before the leaves on the trees change colors, but we will see. Ultimately, the court found that the FTC simply didn't keep its eye on the most important ball in U.S. antitrust law, consumer welfare. What may be bad for Sony isn't necessarily illegal, especially if it's good for everyone else. And for further good news for merger fans, with the FTC so defeated, the UK's CMA, the Competition Markets Authority, the only ones to try to block this deal, saw its own spine similarly reduced, agreeing with Microsoft to come back to the negotiating table rather than pursuing a litigation strategy to its end. We saw that Microsoft and the CMA both agreed to this. Oh, excuse me here for the extra. After today's court decision in the US, our focus now turns back to the UK. While we ultimately disagree with the CMA's concerns over the cloud market, we are considering how the transaction might be modified in order to address those concerns in a way that is acceptable to the CMA. In order to prioritize work on these proposals, Microsoft and Activision have agreed with the CMA that a stay of the litigation in the UK would be in the public interest and the parties have made a joint submission to the Competition Appeal Tribunal to this effect. Brad Smith, Vice Chair and President of Microsoft. So that's the state of play as it stands right now. The FTC has basically been defeated. If you're interested in what's happening on that score, the internal process, the administrative law judges hearing will continue to happen next month. Microsoft and Activision appear to be at the negotiating table with the United Kingdom and the CMA. So they might come to an agreement on what concessions look like in order for Microsoft to continue to operate its company after purchasing Activision in the United Kingdom. But for those of you that are interested in the deal, I think you can expect it to go down to be closed sometime before the fall, most definitely. And we can see this is reported all across the internet here. Here's the Verge article. After beating the FTC, it's now trying to make its big Activision Blizzard acquisition work in the UK. And I would expect that to go through. Thank you once again for everybody that supports the channel, either on Play or Patreon or as a YouTube member or just from watching. If you like this kind of content, if you like these kinds of discussions, please like, please subscribe if you're interested in more content like this. We do Lawyers and Dragons on the weekends. We do other stuff. And I'm meaning to get back to videos here. This worked out for us today, so we'll see if we can keep this process working. And special thanks again to Melissa Latimer for sponsoring this specific episode. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to everybody else for bearing with me as we modify just the channel a little bit in order to make all this work for all of you. Thanks again. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. 